Father, we thank you that you are indeed amazing for the reasons that we just sung about. It is uh, all too easy for us to get distracted from what matters and from what's really important to be uh, in many ways blinded by the circumstances of our life, to be overshadowed and overwhelmed by them. And so as we gather tonight around your word to worship you, to receive most importantly from you, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to give us all that we need. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat, gang. Uh, good to be here with you tonight for our first talk in the book of Revelation. Uh, I've subtitled it, Things Get Weird. Um, chances are, if you have ever read the book of Revelation, you've heard about the book of Revelation, then you know that it is a book that has caused all sorts of, well, problems. Not because of anything with the book. I mean, the book is, it's just difficult for us to understand because we're not used to the style that it's written in. But nevertheless, it, it is a challenge. And so what has tended to happen is the book has just been avoided. Um, it might be referenced every once in a while, quoted every once in a while, but it tends to either be avoided to where you never hear anybody teach on it, or the opposite is the case where there are some churches where it seems that that's all you hear. And so you're always hearing about the end times. You're always hearing about a very specific and kind of way of interpreting the book of Revelation that tends to freak you out and freak me out. Um, and what I'm going to try to do over the next number of weeks, and it's going to be a while uh, because we're going to go through the whole book, is I'm going to try and take away some of the... Uh, the weirdness for you, some of the craziness, some of the things that make us avoid the book, okay? So without further ado, let's go ahead and read uh, from Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, you don't have to read it out loud, but just follow along with the words on your screen or if you have it on your phone and you're more comfortable with that, feel free to do that too. Here's the word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now just before you get hung up on that, seven is the number in Revelation that suggests completeness and infinity. And so this is not saying there are seven different Holy Spirits, but this is a way of talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I only bring this up to you now because I'm not going to talk about it during my actual message tonight, okay? This is talking about the Spirit of the living God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, so he's explaining what the symbol actually means. He says the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. End of reading. All right, that's a lot to take in. And I'm sure somewhere in there you were kind of like, you lost me. Okay, I'm not quite sure what that is and what this is, but I'm going to continue. Well, so we are going to continue. Here's the deal. Um, it is indeed the case that this is one of the most mysterious, misunderstood, and frankly confusing books in the entire Bible. But that is a very ironic thing because the fact is the whole purpose of this book from the very beginning, it says it in the text itself, was to actually... Reveal. The purpose of it is for something that has been unveiled to certainly be, or something that has been veiled to be unveiled for us. That's the point. Now the, the, the audience this revelation is written to, specifically at the time, you heard it mentioned, is seven churches in Asia Minor who are dealing with false teachers leading people astray. They're dealing with spiritual idolatry, people falling away from the faith. They're dealing with persecution and suffering all around them. So, here's what I want to answer in our introductory time tonight. I'm not going to go exhaustively through this. We'll begin going more exhaustively through it next week. This is just kind of an introduction tonight. I want to ask the question first, who in this great book is being revealed to us? Who? What is it that God is revealing to us? 
And why are these things being revealed to us? All right? So who, what, why? Just very basics of the book. Who is being revealed? Well, for starters, the very, very beginning of the book makes it abundantly clear that this is, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's not entirely clear how we are meant to hear that. Are we meant to hear that as this book is meant to reveal to you more about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or are we meant to hear it as this book is Jesus Christ revealing some things to his churches? So in other words, is it about Jesus or is it about what Jesus has to say to the church? Well, the truth is it could be either. The language doesn't really help us here. The, the word of Jesus Christ is a genitive in the Greek, and you don't need to know that except to know that it really does lend to either way of understanding it. It would certainly support both understandings. So, for example, if we were to understand the revelation to be primarily showing us something about the person and work of Christ, well, we'd certainly find very clear statements made about him, especially in the introduction found in verses 4 through 8. Listen to how Jesus is described in this section. I won't go over it again, but you can look it up on your phone if you want to follow along. First, verse 5, he is described as, by the title, the faithful witness. That is, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of truth and faithfulness. Still continuing on in verse 5, he is the firstborn from the dead. What's that reminding us of? That he has been risen from the dead and defeated death, the first one to ever do so. Thus he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Verse 5, still, he's the king of kings. So in case you ever get down about our politics and you think how on earth could this leader possibly be in power, remember Jesus is still more powerful. Verse 5 again. What do we learn about what he's done? That he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The text says in verse 5. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 6. Has made, he has made a church, a kingdom of priests. That is to say, as a result of our being forgiven of our sins by his blood, he has now given us the privilege of serving within his kingdom. Verse 7. He will come again, and all will know when he does. The way that the author says it is that, behold, he's coming on the clouds. To understand what that's referencing, you've got to go back in the Gospels. Or maybe even you can go back to the Old Testament. The imagery is of somebody from God coming to reveal God's plan, his second coming, his ending of all things in power. Verse 8. He is divine. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, refers to himself by the very same title that only God had used about himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. A number of years ago, I was discussing 
the divinity of Jesus with somebody that denied that Jesus was divine. They believed that he was just the best human that ever lived. And so to make my case, what I did is I first had him turn in his Bible to a passage in Isaiah that indeed had God, Yahweh, the Father, referring to himself as, quote, the only first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, that there is no one like him. And I said, let's turn to Revelation. What does Jesus say about himself there? The same exact thing that God says about himself in the Old Testament. So either Jesus is God or he's guilty of blaspheming in the very book that you say is from God. So Jesus claims to be God in the book of Revelation. The letter then goes on to describe what Jesus actually looks like as he reveals himself to the Apostle John in his heavenly state. Verses 13 through 16, John says that he saw one like a son of man, looked human, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So this isn't the picture of Jesus that you get from Sunday school. This isn't the, the felt board Jesus with the brown or blondish hair carrying the lamb. This is Jesus in his divine appearance. This is actually Jesus being described in the very same terms that he's described as at, uh, at, at uh, the night of his, when he announces to the disciples, when he shows his divine uh, presence to them. To Peter, James, and John. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This is language that the author Daniel uses in the Old Testament to describe, again, the, the Messiah. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, very powerful voice. If you want to go back to the Old Testament to see where the Messiah is described this way, you can go back to chapter 10, verses 5 through 21 of the book of Daniel. And this fact is important because it will set the tone early on for our understanding of this book, as we'll see later. I'll describe that, why it's important in a bit. And it says, in his right hand he held seven stars. Now later on in the text, that we're told that represents the angels that oversee seven different churches that we talked about. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Well, what is a sharp two-edged sword? Well, the author of Hebrews describes the word of God as living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so this is the word of God. And his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. This is Jesus being described the same way as he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. In his divine appearance. So yes, there is ample reason to see this writing as being primarily about revealing the person and work of Christ. And listen, all of scripture ultimately does that and is meant to do that. Jesus said so. The end of the Gospel of Luke, he says this to a couple of disciples that he's walking with on the road to Emmaus. And says, you know, he's, everything is really about me, guys. It's all really about me. So if you, if you grew up in Sunday school and you learn that the right answer is always Jesus, it tend, it's actually true. Like it really is always about Jesus. That said, 
On the other hand, if we go back to the very first words of the writing, it can be read as if Jesus is revealing more than just himself in the letter. It can be read this way. Listen, listen again, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Ah, well, so it still is about Jesus, but it's about what's happening and what's going to happen soon. It's the word. The verse suggests that the Father gave the Son, Jesus Christ, a revelation about what's coming. And why did he do it? To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So how does he go about doing this? Well, it goes on. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who then bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So you see the transmission here. The father to the son to the angel to John, who's writing down now everything that he's about to be shown. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So, based on what we've heard so far, based on what we've read so far, I think, again, both views are compatible. I think they're fine. And I think both views will actually help us navigate our way through this book. We are meant to have the person and work of Christ revealed, and we are meant to see what must soon take place about Christ and from Christ in the world and to the churches. So then, let's move on. We got the who. What's the what? What the what? What's being revealed? What is being revealed? Well, we've already alluded to it a little bit in the opening verse. The revelation is given to show the church what will soon take place. Similarly, also in verse 19, Jesus says this to John. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are present, tense, and those that are to take place after this. There's a future. John's going to get a, a window into things that are coming beyond the time he's living in. What are some of these things that you'll see as we move throughout the letter? Author and scholar Dennis Johnson notes a number of aspects of the letter that we should expect to see, and I've taken the liberty of copying some of them for you because he's much more adept at understanding the book than I have and than I could be, and so I have no problem giving him the credit for this. First of all, he wants you to know, when you come to the book of Revelation, very important, it is a book of symbols that pictures the true identity of the church its enemies, and its champion. Gang, this is so important with the book of Revelation. There is so much imagery in here, so much symbolism, that if we don't take time to understand what the symbolism would have meant to a first century audience that was receiving this letter, we probably will not have any clue what or how to interpret it. We have to recognize the symbolism for what it is, or else we'll be lost. And that's what I hope to be able to unpack for you in the weeks ahead. Along with that, Johnson says, you have to be aware that this is a book 
filled to the brim, I mean filled to the brim, with Old Testament imagery. I already alluded to a little Old Testament imagery with the book of Daniel. The fact is, this book is so filled with Old Testament imagery that it is not possible to understand its meaning and apply it to your life at all if you don't go back to the Old Testament. And I would dare say this, that most of the reason that there's been so many terrible teachings that have come out of the book of Revelation has been due to a failure to be familiar with the actual Old Testament texts themselves. So it's absolutely imperative as we go through this, I'm going to be taking you back to the Old all the time, swinging back, going, we need to go back there to understand what this means. I mean, when you see locusts, what's that mean? Is it helicopters, as some said? No, get out of here. No, it means something different in the Old Testament. No, there's a reason this is used, and we need to, we need to uncover that. The, the early Christians that received this letter when they first got it, they understood that imagery. And so we want to get back to there and say, what did they see when they heard this? Third thing, as is very typical in this kind of literature, the genre of literature this is known as is apocalyptic literature. In, in apocalyptic literature, it's a very different kind of writing, numbers are hugely significant. And so, it, you know, you might be able to blow by numbers in other books of the Bible, you know, in genealogies or something, you go to the book of Numbers and it says, 44,132 were part of the tribe of Judah, and 32,120 were part of the tribe of Benjamin. And it goes on, and by the time you've read the third number, you're like, all right, I'll just skip it. I, 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 I know how this goes. I know how this goes. You don't want to do that here. And actually, you don't really want to do that there either, but you really don't want to do that here. You can't just take it for granted. Numbers really matter if you're going to understand what the author actually means. And yet, they're not necessarily to be taken literally. We do take them truthfully. We do take them as actual. But that's not the same thing as seeing them literal. So for example, there's a passage that seems to teach that there will only be 144,000 people in heaven. What are we to make of that? Good gracious. I mean, after all the billions of people that live on planet Earth, 144,000? Good night, nurse. We're all doomed. Now, we have to understand what is meant by that number and what would have been heard back then so that we can interpret the book wisely. So as we dig through this story, we will uh, see history from the vantage point of heaven. We will get just a glimpse of the unbelievable splendor of worship in the heavenly places. You're going to see that a lot. You're going to see John trying to describe heavenly scenes of of thousands and tens of thousands bowing down in worship before God. And it's going to seem hard for us to fathom. Imagine how difficult it was for John writing this down. I mean, he didn't have a laptop where he could type this. You know, he didn't, he, he was with, he didn't have a good big pen, man. I mean, he was <laughs> trying to get all this stuff down that he's seeing that is eternal. We will see prophecies fulfilled. We will see God's eternal plan being worked out in space and time. We'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. 
and see them rage. We'll hear about spiritual warfare, that, that what's going on down here in our midst isn't really everything that's going on in the world. There are indeed spiritual forces battling and fighting. What does that look like? We'll see death in the book of Revelation. There is a lot of death. It gets bloody at some points. It gets weird. We'll see judgment. I mean, if you ever had the impression that like sort of Old Testament God was judgment, New Testament God was have a flower and here's some candy, no. It's not all unicorns and rainbows in the, in the New Testament, folks. And if you ever doubt that, you'll see in the book of Revelation that judgment is still a thing. And yet, and yet, most importantly, what this book is written for is to actually show us God's restoration of his world. And this is what's so lost. In the midst of, yes, the judgment there. Yes, death is there. Yes, blood is there. Yes, there's, there's challenging things that are in there. Yes, there's wars depicted. But that's not, that's all in the process of getting to restoration. That's what this is supposed to be about. This letter was written to give people hope. This letter was written by John not to bum people out. Jesus didn't send it out to the churches to make them feel bad and to make them shake in their boots. No, he wrote it to them so that they'd be encouraged. And every once in a while, you know, in this life, we get, we get an illustration of how God does this. Of how God takes something seemingly terribly chaotic and destructive, which we will see in Revelation, and yet is able to bring redemption and restoration out. I know you guys all are very aware that we celebrated the, we're not, not celebrated, we observed the 18th anniversary of 9-11 this last week. On that day, my wife, Missy Jane, posted a question. Where were you and who were you on 9-11, 2001? Where were you and who were you? And a bunch of people started to respond. A bunch of people started to tell their stories. I was on my way to work. I was getting my, my child dressed for school, you know, things like that. Everybody, everybody can remember exactly where they were. I remember exactly where I was. But to my surprise, eventually she posted her own response, her own answer to that question. She hasn't shared much of this in the broader public. Of course, as her husband, I know this history. I know this story. So I was a little bit surprised to see that she was sharing this with the world, but she did so... Well, I think just to be open and honest and real and vulnerable. But I think also because she saw that, yes, indeed, in the midst of chaos and destruction, hope is possible. And so with her permission, I'm going to read to you tonight her story. That shows just a preview of what God's ultimately going to do in the midst of a world that's full of chaos and, and problems. This is who she was and where she was on 9-11. Quote, I was up for two days coming down off meth. 
I was seeing black, wispy demons from lack of sleep every time I closed my eyes. I was exhausted but scared to sleep. I would take random deep breaths and wonder if it could be my last. I was ready to die, but only because I was that tired. My friend who was crashing on our couch popped into our master bedroom saying we had to wake up. We walked out and saw the second plane crash on our cube of a television. I literally pinched myself and I remember staring at the bruise for days after. I was 19, back to playing house with my unbelieving, cheating boyfriend that wrote songs for me and whose charm was excessive enough to keep our cohabitation arrangement in place. We were living in an apartment in Whittier, California. My ex, a Marine, originally from New York, was in Manhattan. We were finished romantically. Still, I was desperately hoping he was okay. I was depressed, lost, chemically imbalanced, and entirely adulterated by the powers of the air. I was anticipating World War III and the rapture. I knew I needed to go home to Jesus. So I did the next best thing. I called my mom and confessed the darkness I had been lured into for the last year. And she came and picked me up in her silver Honda Accord and drove me to her condo. I remember the days that followed. I cried so much in repentance and my head spent so much time in my own lap my eyes closed tight, I was afraid to open them. I noticed the quiet of the blue, plainless skies as I emotionally wobbled around on land like a newborn kitten with my eyes glued shut from being freshly born again. I breathed in God's truth like the skinny cigarettes in between my pointer and middle fingers. God brought pilgrims of his into my days and nights and they guzzled their living water in front of me, seemingly fully quenched, but ever thirsty for him at the same time. It was a horrific and holy chapter that came crashing down into our world's pages. I have not forgotten the macro or the microcosm. It was my real, first real Thanksgiving. All that to say, ultimately, what this book is about is the same thing that this was about for my life. God taking a world that's fallen and rebelled and broken and beaten. God taking a person that's fallen and rebelled and broken and beaten and saying, it's not the last word, that's not the end. The end is restoration. The end is new life. The end is hope. And a few months later, we got together. So why are these things being revealed? Why? Let's wrap this up. Well, I think, I think there really is three things that I want you to know, and then and it's quick. First, part of what's going on in Revelation, God's warning the world. That is true. To counteract uh, the possible, uh, you know, to counteract this possible sort of thought, you know, that the Apostle Peter mentions, like, well, you know, I don't know if God's really coming again. I mean, it's been so long. The book of Revelation is written to keep people from being complacent or 
from being skeptical. It's written there to remind you that no, this world is not it. Second, again, it's written to strengthen and encourage the church, pointing to a reality of a better day. So that ultimately, the final word of Revelation, if I can paraphrase it, in the words of my friend Dan Van Boris, ultimately the final word of Revelation is, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you. For this book, I pray that you would speak clearly through me in it. I pray that you would help me to understand clearly what it is you're saying to this church. I ask that you, you'd be with us, Father, as we continue now in worship and we, we prepare to come to the table. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.